Mr. Speaker. Mr. Speaker. The chair will put Mr. Speaker. The bill is passed. We've created a commitment to America. Those in favor say aye. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Control, a podcast where we look around the corner at the challenges and priorities facing the 2023 Congress. I'm one of your hosts, Annalise Keller. And I'm your other host, Brendan Buck. Uh, Great to be back with you all again. Uh, It's a busy time right now in Washington. Lots going on to catch up on. We have a wonderful guest this week, our friend Ali Vitale, Capitol Hill correspondent for NBC News. Uh, we are going to get into all the big issues that have been going on recently. Of course, the debt limit, lots going on this week as, as we speak. Um, but a few other things we'll also want to get into, uh, an update on the immigration bill that last we spoke was, was up in the air that, that eventually landed, uh, what that means. Um, we want to get a little bit into uh, the substance of, of the debt limit, uh, the various provisions. Um, and then we're going to start making some predictions. We're down to crunch time. Uh, I wouldn't say uh, it's the, the last phase here. There's probably a few more phases of this, but we're getting pretty close to the X date. So time to, uh, to chart the course ahead um, and, and really dig into what this means and where this is all headed. Yeah, looking forward to that. Um, but I want to talk first about immigration and, and just kind of go back. Uh, as you mentioned, Brendan, last week they had postponed the rule vote, which is Never a good sign. Uh, And I think we were kind of wondering if that was going to be the first time that McCarthy's uh, conference was going to falter. And it turns out that they did not. They were successful. I think they lost two Republicans. Um, You know, I just, again, it's another feat and a testament to McCarthy's speakership. Like, I do think that immigration bills are notoriously difficult to pass in, like, the best of times when you have... Um, you know, sort of the biggest margins and to do an immigration bill. I mean, albeit it's not, you know, really going anywhere, but I just do think it's worth, again, noting that it's uh, just an impressive feat. It's good for member psyche. Um, And look, we've gone into plenty of bipartisan deal-making fiscal issues where the conference is a little grumpy and you go into some of them where they're feeling a little better about themselves and that can make all the difference on on how they're able to to swallow something you know we'll we'll obviously get into the debt limit and we know that that's going to be bipartisan and therefore it means there's going to be some people who don't like it but the fact that members are in um by all impressions a, a very positive mental place is really good for kevin and i think that's probably the biggest takeaway from the immigration thing is um members feel like they're delivering on their promises and they can feel confident going back home and talking about what they're doing. And you know, theoretically, they're going to reward the speaker for doing that. And you're hearing lots of really strong praise from members for his, his leadership. So um, doesn't mean he doesn't have trouble ahead, um, but it's a better starting place that it can be when, when they're really grumpy. Yeah, I mean, there's some grumblings specifically that, you know, it was supposed to be done months ago and this has kind of been a drug out process. But look, I don't really think that any of that matters in the end. Like they put it on the floor and they got it passed. So it's kind of end of story. Um, Okay, I want to move us to the debt limit Uh, before we get into some of these provisions and talk about all the developments that have happened last week. um, Just a quick temperature check. Are you feeling, Brendan, better this week than you were last week? Well, I've always, not always, I, I've been relatively on the optimistic side of things that what you need to have happen to get a deal was happening, and that remains the case. That's obviously no guarantee of success, but I am pretty, um, I, I don't really know what you could look at this and say it should be going a different way if you were looking for an outcome. Yeah, I'm kind of in the same boat. I would just... I would say that I feel a little bit more optimistic this week than last um, with the specific developments of Biden's White House sort of removing um, or agreeing to remove, I should say, uh, Minority Leader Jeffries and Chuck Schumer and kind of deputizing a couple of key point people to do these negotiations. Now, part of that is obviously because he's heading overseas. uh, and, And part of that, I think, is because they are, you know, just as we noted at the top, really coming to the negotiating table and, and taking these, you know, conversations 
day by day. So here's how I see this uh, sort of in general. Things could not be going any better for Kevin McCarthy than they have. He passed a bill through the House that a lot of people, us included, were skeptical that he'd be able to do. He has his entire conference unified behind him, showing no cracks, whether it's on the moderates or the conservatives. Nobody's giving him a hard time. He got the Senate fully backing him. He forced the president to go into a negotiation on something they said they weren't going to negotiate. He said that he wanted it to be a bit of a smaller room, as you said. Um, Too many people negotiating makes it hard to get anything done. He said, let's have it just my team and your team negotiating. He's had the president change his travel plans because I think the president realized that McCarthy would have this sort of political leg up if he was abroad while McCarthy is sort of dominating the conversation back here. Everything that McCarthy could have hoped for is is going his way. However, (laughs) he is still in a pretty bad spot, I think, ultimately. Um, And we'll get into the stuff that they're talking about um, being included in a deal. It looks nothing like what the House passed. And you still have members going out every day saying, you know, that's the kind of thing that we need to see. Now, of course, not every Republican is going to vote for a final deal. We get that. But how much do they appreciate the direction this is headed and how potentially uh, minimal the overall savings are going to be? Look, I don't know what the savings are going to be, but I'm pretty sure it's not going to be going back to 2022 levels and, and all the kinds of stuff that they're talking about in the House. So. Um, I think a deal is there to be had, and McCarthy deserves lots of credit for getting this far, forcing these negotiations, really setting the tone, setting the narrative, having his way to get the process where he wants it. The substance, I think, is another question, what he's going to be able to get out of this negotiation and how his members are going to react to that uh, is going to be tough. And, you know, no guarantee that, you know, when they get a deal that he'll be able to process it in the House. I, you know, I think he will. I think McCarthy knows where his members are. Um, I just sometimes wake up thinking like, which is a sad thing to say, um, thinking, does he... Dreaming about the yeah, development. <laughs> sometimes. Uh, do his members, like, get what he's negotiating? And McCarthy's been very clear very from the beginning. Like, I think since we, we talked about this before our hiatus, McCarthy was talking about some budget caps and, you know, a few other add-ons. And I just wondered then, like, that's a very reasonable outcome. That's a very, like, you know, you're going to need budget caps anyway. Biden shouldn't have too big of a problem with that. But are members going to think that that's worth a massive increase in the debt limit? We'll see. Yeah, I think that's always been the friction point that we've been kind of building to, like, what will be enough? And to bring back uh, another favorite conversation and topic like motion to vacate. I mean, I think, you know, we haven't seen any reason to believe that there will be a revolt uh, to McCarthy's right yet. I mean, we've been, I, I mean, I've been extremely surprised that even, even from a messaging perspective to the press, there haven't been, you know, big sustained outbursts of, you know, real concern from the right, which I think is another testament to McCarthy's ability to navigate this challenge. But I think it's sort of just waiting in the wings at any time to to rear. Um, so I think it will be interesting to see if he's continues to be able to avoid those threats that are kind of have been looming. Yeah, as we were talking about with immigration, everything he's done since getting the gavel has been about putting points on the board to give members uh, confidence and build confidence in him uh, among the membership and, and have them be in a good place for when they eventually have to do this really ugly thing. But I mean, look, I was on TV earlier and they had Bob Good on uh, preceding me. Bob Good, one of the few guys who was like really going after Kevin McCarthy during the speaker vote, like saying he's never going to support him. You know, one, of, one of the primary instigators of the Stop Kevin McCarthy from Coming Speaker movement. And all he had to say was positive things about Kevin McCarthy and they asked him uh, what uh, you know what if he comes back and it's not a good deal is his job in in danger and he like did not bite at all he said no one's talking about that we have confidence in our speaker like that you know there will be grumbling like whenever this deal like there will be people who are very much don't like it 
but when you're starting from a place where like no one's even making the veiled, yeah, we are counting on him mm-hmm. to do something good or else there's going to be problems. Like that stuff used to happen all the time. Right. And the fact that he's been able to avoid that thus far is just a really good sign that whenever this bipartisan deal that lots of conservatives aren't going to like um, comes up, that they won't necessarily take it out. And I think he will have a credible case to say like, I did everything I possibly mm-hmm. could here. And, 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 I, and I think he did. I think everything that um, you, would, you would want to do to control the conversation and ultimately sometimes it's just not possible to, to get a, a better deal than, than what he's probably going to end up with. Yeah. So maybe then we just get a bunch of, you know, kind of fiery press releases and no votes and then everybody moves on. Yeah, I don't want to dismiss the idea that there could be real problems for him. Like I said, I I think he still has real problems. But he's at least starting from a better position. Like it only takes one person to bring up a motion to vacate. It only takes, theoretically, and we could talk about this, four or five Republicans to vote that way if, if Democrats decide they're going to want to remove the speaker too. So, you know, that's not, that problem has not gone away. I'm just saying when they're not sniping at you beforehand, it makes it easier to, to execute. Yeah, totally. Um, there, there was some conversation around this vote, having Dems kind of, you know, be utilized to kind of bail out McCarthy in some way. I mean, I think you know, maybe in the short term, there's there's a way that that can work out. But I mean, I think it's it's kind of a fantasy in the long term. It's kind of like a West Wing plot that you know we're gonna have some weird coalition of Republican moderates and, well, and moderate uh, Democrats come together to pass to do the business of Congress. Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't think it's that weird that Democrats could save him save his job. So Democrats are saying, <clears throat> or at least a group of them are saying that you know. Hey, Kevin McCarthy, if you do a debt limit deal, like we'll make sure that a motion to vacate doesn't pass and, you know, have the courage to do a, you know, a moderate bipartisan deal. Um, We've never had a motion to vacate. It's an open question of how Democrats would vote on something like that. I'm not convinced that every Democrat would vote with a handful of Freedom Caucus members to kick out the speaker. I think they would be concerned about how that you know, what that means for the institution and whether that's, you know, good stability. Like, I just, and I'm sure uh, someone like Akeem Jeffries doesn't love the precedent that's set, that like the, the minority automatically votes um, against the speaker. So I could see them saving his job. Like if a motion to vacate comes up, it fails. However, if you are the speaker of the house and your job is saved by the minority, you're basically toast anyway. Like you, if yeah. you're if you're operating on the minority to get things done, um, you might as well just take off. So uh, it doesn't really like it, he may still be speaker in title at that point, um, but I think yeah, you survived the day. But what their, happens next? Yeah, their offer doesn't really make him any more of a, an effective person than he was going to be if they if he had lost the vote. So there's still some of those other options uh on the table outside of this creative thinking (laughs) gotta respect it um hakeem jeffries sent out a letter to his dim colleagues uh this week calling for everyone to sign on to the discharge petition um which i think i think we've kind of talked uh at length about why that's not very well suited to address this issue apart from the fact that it won't really be ready to vote on by the time that we actually reach the debt limit and default. Um, but yeah, they're still out there, you know, trying to get that ready in the wings. Yeah. Look, if we, if we don't have a resolution by June 12th, when I guess this would be ripe, then yeah, maybe the discharge petition is something that we can turn to at that point. <laughs> the secret weapon. But we're back pretty up, de- back we're pretty plan. deep into crisis. Yeah. If we are, you know, ten or twelve days past <laughs> past the X date, um, I think they just need to acknowledge that they got moving too late. They got caught flat-footed. Um, forget the fact that literally zero Republicans have indicated they would be willing to sign. Right. Uh, and as a reminder, they need five. And they need five. Um, yeah, uh, we continue to talk about the 14th Amendment. I'm not quite sure why um, the president mentioned the 14th Amendment as something they're looking at. Again, I don't know if he meant to say that. Um, 
none of these things are none of these things actually solve the problem uh they're all going to end up in court they're all going to lead to incredible uncertainty over uh our our the full faith and credit of of the united states and the only real durable solution here is some kind of bipartisan legislative action but um you got all these nervous Democrats who are like, look, Joe Biden's going to give away something he shouldn't give away. Like, don't let, I, I mean, that's the way I look at it. Like all of these talk about 14th amendment and all this other stuff is basically trying to give Biden either give Biden leverage or like take away leverage that Kevin McCarthy thinks he has from mm. the deadline to say, Oh no, no, it's not, you don't, you don't, there's ha- another way. Yeah, you don't have me. Yeah. I, I, I can just do this, which I just don't think is very practical, nor does Joe Biden seem like he's um, resisting a deal like they're very clearly moving towards something well i also think if there were other options to tackle the debt limit like they would have been done and they would have been tried and we've kind of talked about all of them and why they're not good fits and why this is sort of the way that it has to proceed like i think it's fine to be upset that we're faced with this you know all of the time and to to be unhappy with the reality but again it's the reality and we kind of are where we are i mean this is the kind of stuff that happens when there are secret negotiations and you don't know where it's going and you know usually it's conservatives get really spooked like what's the speaker giving away what's this going to be like and just now it's just democrats who understandably Mm -hmm. had heard the president say for months i'm not going to negotiate i'm not going to give you anything for this very clearly they're negotiating very clearly they're going to give something away and so you got understandably some progressives who are like what the heck man like we were backing you up we believed you like here we're trying to throw you like a life preserver to not negotiate but it's too late for that i mean they're, yeah. they're moving towards something um something that i know we both found interesting is the deployment by mccarthy of uh rep garrett graves and some of these negotiations interesting is a good word for it yes unorthodox yes do you want to explain? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, typically these negotiations are carried out by, you know, um, McCarthy staff, White House staff. It's it's typically done at a staff level. Um, it's it's pretty unusual to see a uh, a fellow member of Congress being utilized uh, in this way. Obviously, Rep. Graves was pretty instrumental as as McCarthy was trying to secure the gavel for speaker. So there's a lot of camaraderie there. And he was his office was pretty involved in the permitting reform process. So I think that, um, you know, he's he's been central to these conversations. I just think it's he's kind of operating as a McCarthy staffer, which is not not typically something that you see with these kinds of negotiations. Yeah, it's weird. Um, and look, I don't mean to suggest that members of Congress are not smart and capable of getting deep in the weeds and, and sorting out some of these things, but yeah, usually this is staff level stuff and the principals are the ones who make decisions about, um, the higher level things and, uh, like, yes, members of Congress negotiate stuff. Um, in 2011, Eric Kanner was leading negotiations for us for, for a long time. But usually at some point, you know, you're bringing in your really in the weeds issue area expert staffers to to flush out the details of things. And um, maybe they're not at the detail phase yet, or maybe they just feel like they need a little more heft in the room. So they're bringing in a member. Um, Just seems weird that if you're going to have a member, it not be the actual (laughs) member himself who is responsible for all this. It's just one of his allies. Um, Just an unusual circumstance. Just, you know, they... They basically created a position in leadership for Garrett Graves. Um, I guess he's chairman of the elected leadership council, which is a position we've sort of created on and off over the years to give somebody worthy of a spot in leadership. But McCarthy basically created it, appointed it to him. So very close, you know, obviously will be reflecting McCarthy's wishes. Uh, But I'm just curious to see how it goes when you have somebody who's, you know, more of a politician, frankly, um, in those those closed door settings. Yeah. Not that we'll ever see them. And I'm sure he'll do a great job. It's just flagging. It's weird. Yeah. That's fine. Not something that we've seen. Not something that we're used to. Um, Okay, so before we bring on our guest, Allie, um, I thought it might be helpful to quickly go through just a couple of the items that are being negotiated over. Um, Obviously, the House passed version of this will, you know, be completely different, you know, with with what 
is actually signed into law, what they're negotiating about. But I think just going through like a couple of the sticking points that are being talked about now. I mean, the, the shape of the deal is seems very apparent, which is why, you know, I, I think this is not too complicated and they should be able to pull this off. Permitting reform being this shiny object that everybody seems to latch on. And it's one of those weird sort of regulatory things where both the far right and the far left and everybody in between seems to think we, we, we take too long to, to permit things when we want to build stuff in this country. Uh, progressives like it so that you can do more clean energy stuff and conservatives like it, you know, just generally breaking down regulatory barriers and more traditional energy and those kinds of things. I know that that's probably much, there's probably much more um, complex ways to get into this and what that's going to look like may be something they need to negotiate. And that may be why Garrett Graves is there because he has some experience on, on this kind of stuff. Um, but that seems like a pretty obvious thing that's going to be a part of it. Um, perhaps the more significant stuff is those, uh, the budget caps, which they need to, you know, kind of define a little further. Yeah. I mean, house Republicans are coming at it with a bit of a, um, longer view like they want more of a 10-year you know cap steel and i think white house has mentioned a two-year and there's also kind of the floating timeline around when they're you know what the what they'll raise the debt limit until like obviously people i think across the aisle don't really want to be dealing with having to raise a debt limit again before um the 24 cycle uh, but those two things are kind of being negotiated yeah out. i mean those are the that's the big stuff right um you know, we're not doing big entitlement reform here. We're just talking about putting limits on discretionary spending. This is what we've done many, many times since the 2011 debt limit deal, which set budget caps. Um, and they're really probably only talking about the very top level, the sort of what are we going to spend on defense? What are we going to spend on non-defense and let the appropriators figure it out from then? But you still got to figure out what that is. And the house has obviously talked about 2022 levels. Um, I'm sure that that is not anything that the administration is interested in. So like, what's the level of the spending? How much of it are you actually cutting, if at all, versus just sort of like staying flat? Um, I'm curious to see how much of this is going to be, you know, counted against what baseline, you know, we're saving this much money because we would have otherwise spent this much versus how much are we actually cutting from what we're spending now? How long of a deal this is, as you said, is important. Um, you know, nothing binds a future Congress from these caps. And we've actually undone budget caps many times in the last few years. Uh, but just still the idea of like going out like seven, eight, nine years seems unrealistic, but who knows? I'm sure that's, maybe that's just Guess a bit start of, somewhere. Like, guess start somewhere. Um, I'm sure it's just a bit of negotiating. Um, but yeah, they're not, I can't imagine Biden would agree to any debt limit increase that doesn't go through the rest of his first term. Um, which is, again, where the rub, I think, is going to be with <clears throat> the House when you've got potentially tens of billions of dollars of, of savings versus the four-something trillion they did in the House, and the debt limit increase is going to have to be two mm -hmm. or three trillion dollars. That is <laughs> a much larger debt limit increase than it is a spending cut, and but that's probably the reality of the kind of thing they're looking at, which is why I'm deeply concerned for how it's going to fair uh in the house republican conference right because politically i mean i i don't think i mean it's, look it's not easy to do these kinds of things regularly i mean these are especially with this kind of uh these kind of margins in the house but you know having the ability to you know, i think mccarthy recognizes that if he is going to be offering a longer time like if you're gonna you're gonna need more in return right like then you're gonna be able to be in this leveraging position where you can say okay if it's you know if it's if this is where we're gonna head with with the raise that we're going to allow like we need more cuts so i think he'll use that as a leverage point yeah um absolutely and, that, and that's probably why they're positioning like a 10-year i just I, I i think the bigger thing is going to be how deep are the actual yeah. actual cuts um okay we'll move through the last two pretty quickly i think they'll decide what amount of COVID money though they want to claw back. <laughs> we'll what, see. What, whatever was never going to be spent anyway. <laughs> yeah. So that will be a, bit, a savings. Um, okay. The last one I do think is, is another pretty big sticking point in addition to 
the budget and the time, uh, the caps and, and sort of where, what we're going to be lifting uh, to. I think the work requirements are going to be a, a pretty big sticking point. So we've seen a lot of the progressives, uh, you know, really um, get out in front and, and sort of start jumping up and down about Biden's comments, um, sort of indicating that it, he was going to be somewhat open to a conversation. I mean, he didn't, you know, he didn't say anything um, affirmative, but he sort of indicated that he would be open to having a conversation with McCarthy. And then on conversely, can, McCarthy has said, you know, this is a red line for him. There has to be some kind of work requirements. Yeah, I, I texted a friend um, right after I saw those red line comments. I was like, I think he's going to regret having said that. Um, maybe it'll be okay, like work requirements, you know, you can kind of define that however you want. Right, exactly. Um, we're closing a loophole or whatever. Like you can say we have stronger work requirements in here, even if it's nothing like what people imagine um, new work requirements being. Um, I, I found it funny that the president said earlier, like he, he's kind of walking it back. He's like, yeah, I won't, uh, I, I may do something on there, but nothing of any consequence. Which is kind of like, yeah, like I'll, I'll give you some like work requirements in name only. Um, but it's not going to be anything like you want. And so McCarthy will be in a position then if that's what he's able to get to go back and be like, we got strong work requirements. And Biden being like, no, you, no you didn't. Which I imagine is ultimately going to be the, the dynamic on the final bill is McCarthy's going to have to be selling really hard that he got a bunch of savings. And Biden's going to be like, yeah, you didn't really get a whole lot out of this. Right. Thing. That's kind of the dance, right? Well, and I was thinking, <laughs> I actually read his red line comments uh, to be that is what, he's going to sell as as what he got yeah who, who's to say if he'll be successful again i think mccarthy is doing everything he has to do um i i wonder if maybe that was a little overextending himself but maybe he's mm -hmm. confident they're going to be able to get to get something there so I, I i i think he has earned um us having some patience and, and kind of trusting that he uh, has at least some direction and, and a plan for this because he's you know he's done pretty well so far um, but I'll be very surprised if the White House agrees to any significant new work requirements. Um, okay, deal or no deal? What do we think? Put a percentage on it. Okay, so deal that they uh, get a deal done, bipartisan agreement before the deadline, I would say is a, I'll go two-thirds, 67% chance that they are able to get that done. Okay, I'm going to go 66. You're going under. I'm going under. Okay. Uh, that's kind of the same thing. Is that still a 33% chance, 34% chance that we don't get a resolution is kind of scary. And like, yeah. Because I mean, I think there's a deal to be had. It's just, can you like convince enough people to vote for that deal? So the other right, question. Right, we're running out of time. Yeah, we're running out of time. And that's the point. Like, the other question is, when do you need a deal by? Um, I mean, I think that we could put the over-under on when this will actually be wrapped up if we think the X date is June 1. I think we could put the over-under at May 31st as when this would actually be passed through Congress. I, I, Do you think that date's movable at all? What's your sense? I feel like if they were going to show some wiggle room on that, they probably would have done that mm. already. Although I'm publicly, that is. I'd be very surprised if she does not is not affording herself a little cushion mm -hmm, for a couple days. Um, but I guess I I guess I will say I don't think that it is likely that they are going to have passed a deal before May thirty first. What do you think? Yeah, I'm I'm agreeing with you. I. I I don't think so either. I think that's a really big lift. I don't because I mean, you'd have to. I mean. That and would, are we talking about the Senate as well? Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. So we got we've got two, we got two, we got two more weeks before for us to fully. We flush started all this out, out saying we're so optimistic. And here we are. But that's just how it has to go. You can't you can't um, you can't give in too early, or people say you didn't fight hard enough. So we have a uh, a wild two weeks ahead of us. I think there's going to be lots of ups and downs before then. Um, but why don't we bring on our guest now, Ali Vitali, to get a little more insight into what Kevin McCarthy is thinking and maybe what some of those people on the right who are, are giving him a little trouble, what they might be up to and what they're thinking. 
Joining us now, we're very excited to have Ali Vitali, Capitol Hill correspondent for NBC News and author of the hit book, Electable. Ali, welcome to Control. So excited to be here. Um, we're, of course, excited to have you in general, but uh, specifically to talk about the debt limit, which we are obsessed with, and I know you are following obsessively as well. Maybe not by choice, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Brendan uh, has been dreaming about the debt limit. Yeah, he admitted not, it's not healthy. Um, so I guess let's just start with where things, uh, from your perspective, stand today. Kevin McCarthy is now uh, suggesting that he wants to vote on a debt limit bill as early as next week, or he wants to vote on it next week, which seems very optimistic and aggressive. But what are what are you hearing from from up there on the hill? Well, look, that's his timeline. The White House has their own timeline. It wouldn't be the first time that we saw the White House and the Speaker talking past each other on what they want out of these negotiations. But look, I think from where we started, which was Monday, Speaker McCarthy walking into the building and telling me that everything was bad. He was very pessimistic, throwing cold water on anything that seemed productive out of the, at that point, staff level talks to now where we are, where he says, even just in the last few minutes, when they, right before they left town, you know, I see where a deal can come together on the debt ceiling. I mean, that's a markedly different tonal shift. It hasn't gotten less partisan in the way that McCarthy is talking about it, but he needs to do that to keep him, his conference sold on this, as you guys know. So it's less about him calling this a Biden default, which he is, and more about the fact that he's now saying that this is productive, that he's got his top allies in the room, Garrett Graves, Shalonda Young, clearly they have a rapport. Um, you know, it's more positive for sure than it was at the beginning of the week, even as we start seeing these fractures coming along around things like work requirements and other facets of the negotiations that are starting to become public and a little bit more solid in the room. Well, let me just follow up on this. Why, why does he think it needs to be done this weekend? To, like, why does he need to vote next week? Now, I've sort of been saying for a while, like there's not going to be an agreement until the very last minute because everybody needs to have seen that you were fighting until the very last minute. Yeah, uh, we we never get things like I know we're not super early, but even getting things done like five or six days early is not really how we tend to roll on, on the hill. So <laughs> why, why, why does he want to get it done that quickly? Or is that just sort of like I'm trying to force an outcome? So I'm going to set up a, a deadline here. I think it's that. And I also think, you know, on the one hand, he could be looking at the calendar realities, which we know how quickly a recess can change to not being a recess. It just takes, you know, one leader to say, all right, everyone back in town. And frankly, that's what the Senate is trying to do right now. They're saying, all right, you guys should be ready to get called back at a moment's notice uh, next week when they're supposed to be on recess. So look, McCarthy has this whole plan in his head that it has to be done over the course of the next two weeks with a deal coming together this weekend. I don't get the sense that that's the White House's timeline. Biden doesn't come back until the end of the week anyway. Um, but nevertheless, it could be his attempt at posturing and trying to get this done early ahead of deadline. But yeah, I mean, look, this is a building that functions on last minute and last minute alone. So McCarthy's got his own reasons to try to push this as soon as po possible. But I don't know that that's making it go any faster. Yeah. Yeah, I want to change gears a little bit. There's been some news about uh, some more news, I should say, about the 14th Amendment uh, being explored by Biden. There's, uh, you know, I think Fetterman has kind of come out joining some other uh, Senate Dems calling for uh, Biden to explore the 14th Amendment. I think it's it, I think we've talked about this. It seems like a, some frustration coming from the Dems feeling like they're, you know, kind of not not getting what they want. The, you know, Biden's sort of taken this posture of negotiating, considering work requirements. Curious, uh, Ali, what you're hearing on, on, that, um, on that tact. Well, that's the splintering that I was talking about on work requirements, specifically among progressive Democrats. And we're especially seeing it on the Senate side. You know, yesterday, five of them led by Tina Smith, Elizabeth Warren, Jeff Markley, Bernie Sanders and Ed Markey started circulating this letter urging Biden to use the 14th Amendment to unilaterally raise the debt ceiling effectively so that they can skip all of this negotiating over things like budget caps, clawing back COVID relief, but specifically around the potential tenant here in this deal that would add work requirements for federal assistance programs like SNAP. Today, we saw Fetterman join that effort. And I'm, I'm interested in seeing who in the Senate ranks 
actually ends up joining this effort even before leaving town for either a few days or a full week. I don't know what the fate of their recess is fully, depending on how these negotiations go. But that's where the splinter effect is starting. And I think it's just really important. Like, it doesn't matter if a few Dems on the progressive side peel off of this or if a few Republicans on the more right wing side peel off of this. This is something that will be done when it's done, because I'm saying when, because I'm just a serial optimist on this, but it will be done bipartisanly. And so there will be moderates from the Democratic side that come together with Republicans. It will be done from the middle, not from the fringe, right? So like we're watching the splinter effect, but I don't get the sense that that's enough to like tank this fully. Yeah, it, it seems to me it's just a bunch of Democrats don't trust Joe Biden at this point. And it's interesting that uh, like they don't trust that he's not going to give something away in the room. Yeah. And um Maybe that's not that surprising, but the fact that uh, McCarthy's folks are sticking closer to him than Biden folks are at least maybe they're not they're not like fleeing from Biden, but they seem to not really trust him in the room while Repu- while McCarthy, on the other hand, has got a surprising amount of backing. Right. Well, I mean, they have consistently, they being the Warrenses and the Sanderses and others, consistently pressured Biden from the left, even on things like student loan reform. Right. And they've been somewhat successful in being able to mount those campaigns. I think the difference here and what I've heard about is this is one of the big negotiations that's the first time since Ron Klain left the chief of staff role. He was the progressive whisperer, Mm -hmm. someone who really was able to keep that conference's uh, ideology and mindset in mind through their negotiations. Inflation Reduction Act being chief among them. Now, Klain's not there. And I even was asking sources during the week, who's the new call for progressives who you feel really has your back in the room? Maybe it's Neera Tandon, maybe it's someone else. There is no one answer to that. And it used to be Ron Klain, right? So this is a shifting landscape from the progressive perspective, too. Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Um, let me, you know, I'm obviously, of course, obsessed with the dynamics of, of the House and the conservatives yeah. there. Uh, I am really struck by how strong McCarthy's standing is at this moment going into it and the fact that what they're theoretically negotiating, what a theoretical deal could look like, uh, is is a fraction of what they were able to do in the House, and yet he's not getting any real pushback. No one's threatening him. Is this a situation, and I'm just curious what you're hearing, is this a situation where they just implicitly trust him and, and know that you know sticking by him is best, or do they not appreciate potentially they're not going to get a lot of these things? I, I just wonder, um, I, I, and maybe I, I'm getting this wrong, I just imagine that a final deal is not going to look anything like the House bill, and that should theoretically upset a lot of conservatives and make them... Uh, you know, think that McCarthy didn't didn't drive a good enough deal. Do they not appreciate that's where this is heading, or are they just that disciplined right now? Which I've never really seen that kind of discipline um, to think <laughs> that it just like I the best thing I can do right now is give Kevin my backing, and that's good for the outcome. Yeah. I think it's like the devil you know versus the devil that is unknown at this point if McCarthy weren't the person who was in the room, right? I mean, I was even talking to Congressman Scott Perry earlier in the week saying like, well, where are your red lines when this inevitably comes out of the negotiation? And he kind of yelled at me saying, I'm not the one who you should be talking to about red lines. We passed something. And I was like, yeah, but you know, it's going to be different. He was like, <laughs> it's going to be there. It's going to be there when it's going to get there when it gets there. Right. And he says he feels comfortable. McCarthy and the allies are briefing him. The Freedom Caucus feels at least like they're being prioritized to have their opinion consistently kept front of mind on this. So I think there's that. I also think that a lot of the stuff that they were able to push for in the first version of this, which, again, you're right, will not look anything like the final version. That was done over dinners with Senator uh, Senator Rick Scott, uh, Chip Roy, Scott Perry, uh, Mike Lee, other members of the Freedom Caucus. Like they pushed this as far to the right as they could. They know they did that. And I think that they know that like this is the best deal that they're going to get. Like I almost think that like someone gave them their dose of reality. But even if that doesn't hold the people who they'll pick up with a deal that looks different can hold them over for the people that they might lose the Ralph Normans potentially, the Matt Gates is potentially. So like, I feel like they know that they got the best that they could in that first vote. And like, that's just it right now. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Um, and Brendan touched on this and we touched on it earlier, but the discipline of the Republican conference is 
Um, definitely not something that that we're used to seeing. Uh, you know, typically <laughs> no. these people, um, you know, these members will will kind of be very public in a position that they, you know, then find themselves having to stick to, right? And I, I think we haven't really seen a lot of that. And I think it goes to to your comments about about Perry. Like, you know, typically these uh, these folks will say, like, this is my red line. You know, I'm not willing yeah. to, to take a deal unless it, you know, has X, Y, or Z. And then, you know, when the deal comes and it is very different, like, then they're in a, in a corner. I mean, you don't think a Scott Perry is ever going to vote for a final deal, do you? I don't know. I guess it depends what the deal looks. Like. I would say I would say no, but we can't even get that far down the line, right? Well, like, let me let me test like my just sort of operating yeah. sort of theory on this with you. So, I think Kevin has done this has gone as well as it possibly could for Kevin. I think he's done everything oh, totally. right and like he's in a great spot. I still think he's in a whale of uh, trouble uh whenever a final deal comes back and Maybe that's not true. I don't know. Like the fact that nobody is making uh, threats uh, about what needs to be in here or, or criticizing the way he's handling this, um, maybe he's not actually in trouble, and maybe they will give him a pass if it is not, um, you know, that that big scale of a of a final outcome. I don't know. What do you, What do you think? I just feel like in the same way that during the speaker multiple rounds that we're all still reliving the trauma of. I think in the same way that there was no alternative truly to McCarthy then, there is still no alternative to McCarthy now. And I think that that might be why we're not seeing people making waves. I do think that there is an acknowledgement that A, during the negotiations during the speakership, they were able to extract a ton of the things that they actually wanted from a Freedom Caucus perspective, procedurally and otherwise. And they're also now looking at McCarthy, A, having pushed the deal that he initially passed as far to the right as they can get it, but also realizing that there is still no alternative. I mean, like, right, Brendan, if you think about it, like, who else would be speaker if it wasn't McCarthy? And I know that, like, maybe the answer is like, maybe Scalise, but like, I remember what his whip count looked like during the McCarthy balloting, too, right? Like, yeah, they, they seem generally quite happy with him. And so, you know, it's usually you, you use these moments as sort of an excuse to get what you want anyway, like, uh, you know, they're kind of walking him into a trap like, you know, uh, we want to we want to pressure him. We want to get rid of him and just kind of right. let it let him wait till he does something that we don't like. And then we'll use that against him. But it doesn't feel like he's getting set up in that way. I, I, I still refuse yeah. to, to imagine there's going to be a debt limit deal that does not create a lot of angst and grief and trouble for him. But it is certainly it, it, it's notable to me that um, at least, you know, a week or two out, he, he's in very, very strong standing. I mean, ask me a week from now, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. It I kind will. of feels like, um, you know, things are going in a in a really positive direction. But you know, of course, we know that these things can change really quickly. Um, <laughs> so I think we saw we saw even some some speculation out there that you know maybe some moderate Dems are going to come to the rescue of Kevin McCarthy um, and, oh, and bail him out and sort of create this new um, this new faction that will uh, you know somehow operate functionally in Congress. Uh, what do you what do you make of that? So let's say that <sighs> you know the things fall apart as as they're want to do and someone invokes you know motion to vacate and then we sort of are faced with a situation where dems are, are coming together to save him i'm sorry i just had a mild panic attack thank you for that lovely theoretical scenario <laughs> i mean look i guess i i guess I, I live in a world where anything is possible until it all plays out right so like yes you could have this wild scenario where Democrats, moderate Democrats, try to save McCarthy from himself. We've already seen the McCarthy side push back on that and be like, yeah, no, thank you. That's not how we're going to do this, of course. But at the same time, I do think that if it all goes down and it all goes wrong, this is one of those interesting moments where I am keeping an eye on that discharge petition that Democrats circulated. Um, obviously, that was sort of like their ace in the hole. Like they kept that on the side as a fail safe here. They got 210 votes, uh, 210 signatures on that in a day. You know, it's not the number they need, but it's a substantial number. I've had several Democrats say to me, hopefully, if not, you know, very fantastically, like only five Republican votes. We only need five Republicans. Like they don't even have all Democrats yet. So it's not it's not real till it's real. But like I'm wondering if that becomes a vehicle, should everything just fall apart? Does that become something that's less West Wing fantasy and more? actual tangible way to avoid catastrophic default. I mean, 
I almost think that's more likely than moderates helping McCarthy. I still think it's West Wing fantasy, if only because the, the 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 calendar. Like, Definitely, it, it, it won't it won't be ripe until we're past the. Things will have already gone terribly off the tracks at I that thought, point. I thought that yeah, I thought that they were. I thought that they did their waiting period in secret already. No, so the the they introduce the rule, and the rule is the rule is effectively what brings up the bill. You actually do a discharge on the rule, not on, on the rule, not on the underlying bill. And yeah. the rule still needs to sit out for a few days. So Tom Wickham, who was the you know the parliamentarian in the House, he's now at, at, at chamber and put out a memo basically saying if you run all of the calendar days necessary for this, you could get to it um, in the second week of, of June. So it's it's still they've still got some days they're going to have to run. <clears throat> excuse me, going to have to run through to be able to, I guess that's to execute it. I guess that's assuming that the May calendar stays as it currently stands. The same, right? Yeah, no, that yeah, certainly they could if, if they're in session for additional days. But of course, McCarthy controls whether or not they they walk nah. themselves into that. So let me pose a few scenarios to you, and I know you know we're not we can't predict what's going to happen, but. Mm. Um, if they get to the X date and there's no deal and they're not, you know, for whatever reason, things are stuck. Do you think at that point there would be uh, appetite even grudgingly for a short-term increase? It's a great question. I mean, the fact that they came out of Tuesday's meeting with the core four congressional principals and Biden saying that everyone agrees that default is off the table that to me i thought was reassuring from the perspective of we will do what we have to do to avoid default which has never happened before but on the other hand um i don't know i I never say never right there's been a lot of negativity around passing anything short term i think every republican senator i've spoken to about it has you know said no to it out of hand um but we don't know until we get there right and i hope we don't get there but if we do I think that's a tough sell, but I, I don't know. I mean, the landscape changes when it's no longer theoretical and it's the day the day after tomorrow when you're staring down default. Yeah, I don't think you do it for a strategic reason. You just may have to do it out of necessity. Um, yeah. Is, and then my other sort of, and this is a, a darker scenario. Um, oh, great. And I know you won't be able to answer, but I'd love to just sort of your, your gut thoughts on it. We get a deal and the right does lose their mind and there is a bunch of blowback and donald trump says it's a bad deal and uh matt gates all of a sudden comes back and says i'm going to do a motion to vacate if we put this bill on the floor you think kevin mccarthy still moves forward uh with that or or is do you think threats like that could potentially derail something at the last minute wow i mean I feel like he would have no choice at that point but to turn around and go back to the conference, right? I mean, we watched the negotiating style during the 15 balloting rounds where he knew he just had to keep going back to the same well time and again, time and again, trying to exact as many concessions from these folks as possible to get what he wanted. I don't know that he, I think he knows where his bread is buttered. So you mean don't like, you? You, th- you think he would say, we're not going to go forward with it? I would, but, I think, right. Yeah, I mean, look, I, everything Kevin McCarthy has done for the last four years is to become speaker. Um, right. And so I, I, you know, I my, se- my sense is he would plow ahead. Like he wouldn't risk default over that, but I could definitely see mm-hmm. him coming back and saying, um, Mr. President, like this deal isn't good enough. I have, to, I need something more. Um, but that's a tough spot, yeah. especially if we're doing that with, you know, a couple of days left to go. Maybe that's why he wants to get, provide himself a little cushion uh, in the calendar, give himself a little Turn more time. Turn early. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. I mean, look, that that is a situation where, you know, you're just we're always in uncharted waters. But like that would just bring us to even even further, like un- verge of unprecedented default, like start talking about a motion to vacate the entire thing. I mean, chaos would reign. And that would be wow. Thank you for the nightmare scenario. I will go to sleep with that tonight. Appreciate it. <laughs> I do every night. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> um, Allie, so we're going to get you out of here, but I have one more question for you. Um, yeah. So when, so I was kind of struck by the um, work requirements being McCarthy's red line. I just wanted to go back to that quickly. I'm curious if, you know, you 
if if you were hearing that that's something that you know maybe McCarthy sort of sensed that you know Biden would be uh, amenable to uh, an agreement here, or you know, I'm of of the so many different things that I could think of as being sort of the the question and sort of the the one thing that you know House Republicans wanted to get in this deal. It's kind of struck me as curious that it's become work requirements. And yeah. I'm just curious. I'm just wondering, like, kind of, how did you did you hear anything about how that came to be? Did he mean to say it was a red line? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question, but but it is now, and the White House isn't saying it's not not a red line for them. Like, I mean, they're being super squishy in their terminology around it. So now, whether he meant to say it or not, it is a red line. I do think the genesis of this, though, came when he was cobbling together the first few, the first for the first vote that they took on the debt ceiling bill. When he was cobbling those votes together, there were several members of the Freedom Caucus, including people like Matt Gates who were saying that for them, work requirements was a real sticking point. They needed that in there. And the fact that it now translates to this bill, it wasn't initially in the consensus points that I had heard about, the permitting reforms, the, the clawing back COVID relief stuff, the spending cap stuff, but now it has bubbled to the top. And I think it's one of the ways that McCarthy knows he can placate some of those Freedom Caucus members who may otherwise hate the ultimate version of this deal, but can keep them on board for things that they thought were priorities in the initial phase of this so that to me is the genesis on work one work yeah, they can call it they can call it a win yeah, yeah they can call it a win even if it's a loss right like they fought for it to be in the original version of the bill that they voted for so the fact that it's in here now i think is to me a freedom caucus placating method yeah i i, I just wonder if it ends up being like whether or not something is actually new work requirements is in the eye of the beholder and Kevin McCarthy is right. telling, yes, we got a great win, and Biden's kind of shrugging. This is this is nothing, and both sides kind of have to sell that hard, which is a but, tough, tough but I've, I've also talked to moderate Democrats, though, who are like, yeah, we should talk about this in some form or fashion, but they argue that the forum is wrong, that it shouldn't be part of a debt ceiling. We're in a farm bill year, for example. Maybe it should be part of a farm bill conversation um, that has a larger uh, umbrella over things like SNAP and WIC. Um, it's not they don't want to have the conversation. They're arguing the forum at this point on the moderate Dem side anyway. Yeah, a lot of Democrats would not would like the president not to be negotiating right now, but that ship has clearly sailed. So here we are. Correct. We're uh, out of the harbor and on the seas, guys. <laughs> all right, Allie, uh, this has been awesome. Thank you for taking some time with us. We will obviously be watching this closely, uh, following your coverage. So uh, thank you. And we will be staying tuned. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, guys. Control is a production of Seven Letter, a leading strategic communications firm in Washington, D.C. and Boston, with deep experience in bipartisan public affairs, public relations, crisis management, digital strategy, and corporate engagement. Special thanks to our producer, Benji Englander. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Please join us next week for another episode, and don't forget to rate and review us. Thank you for listening.